Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. Hi everyone. By a miracle, I've got this one released, despite my house move being delayed by the dysfunctional English conveyancing system. So I'm in a house full of boxes and an air of desperation. I have been able to modernise the website a bit though, so please check it out for things like transcripts, recipes and artwork. Also, if you are new to the show, the website has groupings that let you listen to episodes by theme. This is our first narrative episode of 2021. We left off last year in Tasmania. We had covered the early settlement of Australia, the thorny issue of land rights, ethnicity and early colonialism in Australia and Tasmania, finishing up with the aftermath of the British genocide of the indigenous peoples. Today we will pick up some of the ongoing developments in Tasmania in the 1840s as the fledgling colony struggled to find an identity. Before we get going, I'd like to do a few thank yous to new patrons and reads and reviews. Welcome to two new patrons, Lovable Chimney Sweeps, Jason McCulley and Michael K. 19C Fan. First review from Payongs and Blimps, USA, five star. Quote, quality podcast. Main storyline is good and minisodes tell interesting related stories. End quote. Next up is a five star review from Le Jussali in Sweden. I'm probably not saying that correctly, so I'm sorry about that. Quote, this podcast is well researched and raises very interesting topics. Chris has a great voice and his passion for the Victorian era really shines through in his work. I particularly appreciate the effort in understanding events and phenomena from the point of view of the people living at the time. My favourite episodes are the ones about Mount Tambora, but all of them are interesting and well worth listening to. Well done, and thank you for a great podcast. End quote. Yes, everyone enjoys the Mount Tambora shows, and they were really great fun to do. Six five four three six five four two seven three six five from the USA says five star quote I love learning about this fascinating era very enjoyable and educational podcast thanks so much end quote Go Runner USA says five star quote Christopher's show has been accompanying my long distance runs for the past year. And I must say, it's been a wonderful workout tool as I often find myself running further than planned just to finish one of his captivating episodes. Listening to this podcast has spurred me to read several Victorian classics with a new understanding and context. Sincerely, a grateful American. End quote. I think that's the first time anyone has said I've motivated them to do exercise, but I'm glad it helped. Czar1900 Five Star from the USA says, quote, Love this podcast. Very well done. One of the best. End quote. Holly Oak from the USA says five star. Quote, Mr. Fernandez Packham's podcast is a treasure. Normally, I trend towards the ancient and medieval history periods. The 19th century has been too modern for my taste so far. 
Yet this podcast has captured my attention and I love every minute of it. The detail of the Napoleonic Wars, I'm barely at the Congress of Vienna at this point, combined with little and not so little delves into the daily and the mundane of the Victorian era through the minisodes is rich, informative and pleasant to listen to. I am learning and having a great time at the same time. I am even a bit torn between binging on the rest of the episodes until I catch up with the current ones and slowing down a bit to prolong the delightful learning. End quote. I know what you mean. It's the eternal dilemma of podcast listening. To binge or to stretch it out. Right then, as you are listening to this, COVID is still raging and the UK is struggling with the fallout from Brexit. And sometime after, the end of the United Kingdom as Scotland begins its inevitable move to independence. The US presidential election is now in the rearview mirror too. I mention this because you will have noticed that when these great historical events were going on, most of you continued your lives as normal, or at least as much as you could. The history books will barely notice that you got up, made your bed, showered and brushed your teeth, dressed, wakened the children, and descended to the dining room for breakfast. Then, after a perusal of your newspapers of choice by your smartphone, and some angry yelling at disinterested offspring regarding the state of the country, you went about your day. A podcast in a hundred years' time might well struggle to explain the day-to-day experience of life in a time of pandemic and political upheaval as the planet burns due to rampant climate change. Yet each day, you have done the things you do. Some of you might have experienced some big changes, but they are rarely on the scale of things that make a blip in history. When we look back at Victorian history, especially colonialism and empire, we need to understand how much of it was made up of this kind of day-to-day normalcy for many people. Sometimes it is the smallest details that change history. Other times, people destroy their own lives and make almost no impression on the great events that go on around them. Mostly, it's a mix of the two, destroying their own life as part of a greater series of events. For us, today's journey begins with Hannah Herbert, also known to the court as Anne Herbert. She was born in 1804. Place of birth, Oxfordshire. Shipton, to be precise. Gender, female. Height, 5 foot 4 inches. Hair, brown. Eyes, hazel. Distinguishing marks, lost some of upper front teeth. Hannah had made the spectacularly bad decision to commit fraud in 1838. In particular, she had decided to forge the signature of Lady Sarah Wood on a bill of exchange. She gave it to John Drury to change to cash for a fee. He was suspicious and instead went to Lady Sarah and the bank Hawes & Co, our old friends from the Beatrice Summer episode. Hannah's deception quickly unravelled and the police arrived. She attempted suicide by taking laudanum, but this failed, so she was taken to court. Her defence appears confused. I've read the court account and it seems she claimed either that the whole thing was a mistake 
or that she was forced into it by more experienced criminals. She blamed John Drury for not following this inquiry up, it seems, although I'm not sure why she felt her victim should investigate whether she was a junior criminal in a fraud. It is hard to follow what she was claiming. In any event, her trial would have been much shorter than a modern criminal trial. Judges had much more power than today. Procedure was somewhat looser and there was far less paperwork. Defendants were often unrepresented. Character and reputation counted for a lot though and most courts genuinely tried to achieve in what they considered just results even if the penal code was spectacularly harsh. The court was unimpressed by Hannah and her defence and she was found guilty. But for Hannah, fate in the form of the jury was going to intervene. They urged the court to be merciful. That was important since this kind of fraud could be a hanging matter. Criminal justice in England in 1838 was savage and designed to be brutal. For example, James Whittle and George White were two soldiers, aged 20 and 25. They knocked a man down with a blow to the head, stealing his watch and a few pennies and a handkerchief. It was a nasty assault, leaving the victim bleeding and upset. They certainly deserved a prison sentence. They were caught the next day and sentenced to death. Hannah was slightly more fortunate. Courts and juries didn't like to see women hanged, so they often either refused to convict or fudged the value of the theft to below the capital punishment threshold. Hannah was about to benefit from this mercy. The court sentenced her to transportation to Van Diemen's land. We don't know what the judge in Hannah's case was like as a person. Was he a hang em high and flog em for good measure? Was he religious? and pained at each case. Did it weigh on his conscience? Or was he indifferent? Just another case in a long line of cases to be done before a glass of port at his London club. Philosopher Jeremy Bentham lampooned judges in transportation cases, saying, quote, I sentence you, says the judge, but to what I know not, perhaps to storm and shipwreck, perhaps to infectious disorders perhaps to famine, perhaps to be massacred by savages, perhaps to be devoured by wild beasts. Away, take your chance, perish or prosper, suffer or enjoy. I rid myself of the sight of you. The ship that bears you away saves me from witnessing your sufferings. I shall give myself no more trouble about you. End quote. Hannah was now a convict to be sent to the Australian colonies to serve a seven-year term, boated in the London slang of the time. If she behaved, she could get her ticket of leave, that was a kind of early parole for good behaviour, or perhaps a certificate of freedom at the end, for a very tiny few, perhaps the chance to work a passage home as a sailor on a ship bound back to England. She might have wondered, as she was taken from the court, whether this was really a mercy or if a swift hanging would have been better. Time must have dragged for her. She would have felt that moment of horrified separation prisoners feel. To know normal life was going on without her, just outside the prison wall, yet no one would spare her a thought. 
Her life was suddenly on hold and the world would speed on without her. She was to suffer the equivalent of exile. As a convict, she was now disposable in the eyes of society. Convicts occupy a strange place in the imagination of modern society. Evil and to be brutally punished, yet somehow glamorous outlaw and often fragile and vulnerable at the mercy of the state, told when to eat, what to eat, what to wear, when to sleep, where to sleep, how to speak and who to talk to. The eternal question of punishment versus rehabilitation versus redemption. Even when a prisoner has nominally finished their sentence and paid for their crime, modern society punishes them by denying them employment, hanging their record around their neck forever. Nor was the 19th century any more forgiving for ex-convicts. But at least there were no national computer databases to brand them no matter where they went. During the transportation period before the loss of the American colonies, convicts were often confused with indentured servants and able to slip away into American colonial society. This effectively gave them a clean slate. That practice was cleared up in law by the time transportation to the Australias started. There was no large white colonial population for convicts to blend into and the indigenous peoples were being wiped out or relocated. Convicts were far more obvious, yet because they were so ubiquitous, it was inevitable that they would eventually blend in with the colonial population at some point. They filled almost all roles, building roads, bridges and public buildings, becoming architects and even police officers. Even as late as 1841, after the influx of non-convict settlers, convicts still made up 20% of the colonial population, that is, those who survived the alien landscape, its insanely dangerous wildlife, and didn't starve to death in a place where even the seasons were different. For Hannah, this must have been quite a fall. You might notice the offence is a fraud type offence. It required literacy and some degree of education in finance to create the scam. She wasn't a street thief or a common stealer of luggage. If she lived to reach the colony, she would have had slightly higher value to the colony than the men, since women were often scarce. In 1833, there were 14,900 convicts in Tasmania, but only 1,849 were female. It was mainly men who were disposable enough to be sent to the ends of the earth to labour and die. Not that reaching the colony would have been easy. She would have had to travel an enormous distance. The voyage was on the transport ship, the Hindustan, departing England on the 6th of May, 1839. She risked being shipwrecked, attacked by pirates, or more realistically, dying of shipborne disease, her body racked with agony as she expired in a filthy cell below decks. If she was lucky, she might have found a forward-thinking captain and surgeon who focused on good shipboard hygiene to prevent sickness among the prisoners spreading to the crew. Most likely was typhus 
also known as Jayong fever. Very sadly, the Journal of the Surgeon of the Hindustan isn't available in the convict archives. The surgeon of the ship before the Hindustan, the Majestic, kept excellent records and showed a determination to care for his patients to the best of his abilities. Each sick case was meticulously tracked with times and positions given. Besides fever, seasickness, depression, tetanus, serious injuries and food poisoning, he also lists dealing with eye problems, anorexia, sick children, complications in pregnancy and more besides. He closed his journal entry of the voyage with the following, quote, All the prisoners embarked were in a healthy condition, with the exception of the one that I had to send to the hospital ship Unity and the child that died on board. I have the satisfaction to state that I saw them disembark in a higher condition, good spirits and all healthy. There were one on the sick list for 14 days previous to their disembarkation. Touching at the Cape of Good Hope was of essential benefit to them. Many of them previously touching there had swollen legs and boils. I had about 24 more on the list than are in the journal, but they were all slight cases, like the slight cases in the journal of bowels and stomach complaints. I kept the prisoners always on deck during the day, except when the weather and duty of the ship admitted of it, excepting when I sent them below for punishment. I had two women to superintend the cleaning of the deck below, one on each side, with four or five women under her. There was scarcely a day that they were not sprinkled, scrubbed or scraped. By that plan, with which I commenced, I ended, and I'm pretty well convinced that I had much less trouble, and the duty performed at the same time performed with more efficiency than by the adoption of the Admiralty instructions. I never had occasion to use of the chloride of lime, nor any of the stoves. P. Fisher. End quote. You notice the reference to children in the list of problems? Well, children were sometimes transported with the mothers, or sometimes the women were pregnant before they sailed. Other times they went with infants in their arms, or young children. One surgeon had to deal with a three-year-old who broke an arm falling down a ladder. Hannah had left England in May 1839 and arrived in September 1839. The Hindustan was lucky and made good time. A mere four months locked up on a ship through blazing heat and storms. Perhaps the other 178 prisoners on the transport regaled her with terrifying tales of what awaited them all. You might remember from the last main episode that even distilling was banned in Van Diemen's Land and had been from the 1st of January 1839, so Hannah wouldn't even have a legal bottle of something to comfort her, though I'm pretty sure she'll have found an illegal one. For a woman who had almost certainly never left England, it would have been like being locked on a spaceship to Mars and being told you are the disposable worker to get things started. Had she even heard of the colonies in Australia or the terrifying Van Diemen's Land? Between the 1820s and 1850s, Van Diemen's Land had acquired a reputation of fear 
and dread amongst the convicts. For Hannah, prosperous farms, telegraphs and steamships were an undreamed of future. She appears at once to have lost all power and agency since she was forced to Van Damon's land. But then again, she had chosen to commit the crimes that led her there. She was going to benefit in a small way from the immense imperial power as the British attempted to turn their tiny foothold into a proper colony. For that, they needed the land to become productive and able to trade, hopefully in food. This would attract more settlers and hopefully increase the birth weight. But others amongst the British authorities wanted Van Diemen's land to remain a prison hell to terrify convicts. One writer who did leave a book on his experience with Van Diemen's land was Linus Wilson Miller, an American from New York. He was part of the Canadian Rebellion. I've mentioned it in passing as something Queen Victoria and Lord Melbourne briefly worried about. For them, it was almost a piece of background politics, whilst Victoria was arranging things with Albert. For Linus Miller, it was the most important event in his life, since he was convicted of high treason and sentenced to death. He was a well-built man of six foot who was training as a lawyer, but who got caught up in the excitement of the inept rebellion in 1838 and was one of the Americans taking part in raids against the British-Canadian authorities across the Canadian border. In legal terms of the time, despite a spirited defence, when looked at objectively, Miller was a US citizen who had crossed the border into Canada with guns and the intent to kill soldiers of another nation on their own soil with no declaration of war to aid a rebellion and against the express policy of the US government. Whatever the rights and wrongs of the rebellion by the Canadians against the British, and there were plenty on all sides, Miller had not just walked onto thin ice, he had jumped up and down on it whilst banging a drum. That's pretty much textbook terrorism in today's term, but it was naturally cloaked in the high-flown phrases of the 19th century, like doing my duty and patriotism and liberty. Miller was only spared execution when some friends intervened to beg for mercy. His sentence was commuted to transportation to Van Diemen's land. He later reflected, quote, Could I have foreseen one-fourth part of the sufferings which that commutation entailed on me? I would have preferred immediate death, end quote. He was shipped to England, where the sentence was confirmed at a court in London. Then he was sent to do manual labour whilst waiting for a transport ship to Van Diemen's land. He bitterly reflected on the life of the convict. Quote, I began to learn that a prisoner must have no will of his own, no feelings, no soul. The discipline to which he is subjected being tended not only to torment the body, but to crush and destroy all those attributes which constitute the man as distinguished from the brute, end quote. We are incredibly lucky that after five years in Van Diemen's land, he was able to return to America and write a book about his experiences. 
His account of the voyage is a wonderfully detailed one and gives us a glimpse into life as a convict below decks. He was sent to Van Diemen's Land aboard the ship Canton with 240 other convicts, including 10 other lifers. It departed England on the 12th of September 1839 and arrived in Van Diemen's Land on the 12th of January 1840, so very shortly after Hannah. What a variety of life there was on that ship. The crew included not only sailors, but officers, the surgeon and his assistants, and the military guard of 40 men from the 96th Regiment under Colonel Hume. They were going to join the rest of the battalion in Van Diemen's Land. Miller's voyage was different, as was his position in the convict hierarchy. Prisoners regard status as vital in prisons, and each prison develops its own culture. Miller had influential friends who wrote to the ship's surgeon, Dr. John Irving, Royal Navy, to get him and a couple of other convicts called Grant and James Gemmell special treatment. James Gemmell had been involved in the Canadian Rebellion too, and ironically, his death sentence had been commuted by the Governor of Upper Canada, Sir George Arthur. Yes, the same Sir George Arthur, who was the former Governor of Van Diemen's Land and the man who led the Black War. It truly is a small world. Gemmell would go on to write a book about Van Diemen's Land. There were around 154 prisoners in all from the second wave of the Canadian Rebellion who were transported. Most of the French Canadians were sent to the colony of New South Wales on the mainland, whilst the Americans and Canadians of American origin were sent to Van Diemen's Land. A good number of convicts from Lower Canada were seen as solid farmers who had been led astray, and it was felt they were different from common criminals. They were just the solid, skilled people the early Victorian colony of New South Wales needed, unlike the troublesome Americans who had crossed the border to fight in someone else's war. Miller was allowed books and given a special berth in the prison below decks to share with Grant. It was theirs exclusively and near the deck hatch, so they got good fresh air. They were allowed to go on deck whenever they wanted some free exercise and, unlike other prisoners, were allowed up on the forecastle. They were also allowed extra tea, sugar and biscuits. You can imagine how the other prisoners felt about this. Miller and his privileged friends were hated by the other prisoners and he despised them in turn as mere uneducated common scum. He was appointed as a teacher for the school lessons run for convicts who were allowed lesson time daily if they wanted. He found it far too dull for him and attendance was patchy. Eventually, quote, there was so much wickedness constantly going on that but little progress could be made in anything good. And after a short time, our number dwindled down to teachers only. All of Hume knew too much to be instructed by the others. And so we had a vacation, which lasted to the end of the voyage. End quote. Miller 
enjoyed the chance to see Tenerife and watch the wildlife. The sailors often caught shark or birds to eat, and Miller and friends were sometimes treated to fresh meat from the catches. After rounding the Cape of Good Hope, the ship touched Tristan de Cunha for supplies. They were greeted by local dignitaries, and Miller gave this fascinating account. Quote, we were soon boarded by the governor, accompanied by several of his subjects, among whom I soon discovered a countryman. From him, I learned some interesting particulars of his adopted island home. Population was only 59 and consisted chiefly of shipwrecked mariners of every nation in Europe and the New World. They obtained a livelihood by agricultural pursuits, grazing and trading with the vessels which frequently touched there. They had, at that time, 900 head of cattle and 3,000 sheep. Their social and political condition may be described as follows. A community of property, a written code of laws of their own making and suited to their peculiar condition, the execution of which depended upon the will of their governor or chief, a due observance of social rights and duties among themselves, and honourable dealing with strangers with whom they traded, were the leading characteristics of this singular collection of men. Several were married and had small families. The chief, who enjoyed that honour from being the first settler and oldest inhabitant, had an African wife and three daughters, two of whom were married, and my informant added, with not a little pride, that he had the distinguished honour of being the king's son-in-law, and when the old man died, should be his successor. They acknowledged allegiance to no government except their own, and their independence had been tacitly recognised by the vessels of every nation by whom they were visited. Hitherto, they had lived in peace and amity, and their laws had been in general strictly observed. I inquired of my countrymen if he had no wish to return to the United States, but he promptly assured me that nothing could tempt him to abandon the island. End quote. During the voyage, whilst Miller was clearly feeling unhappy at being a prisoner, and therefore well below his perceived station in life, his main problem was seasickness, especially during the various storms. Tempers amongst the crew sometimes frayed, and Miller was astonished that they'd settled disputes by bare-knuckle boxing. He remarked he'd rarely seen fistfight like this before, and those he witnessed in the USA lacked the rules, formality, and sheer skill of the English and Irish fighters. If Miller was having a lovely time in his extremely privileged position, the other convicts weren't. Without extra rations, access to books, or chats with friendly sailors, they were bored, lacked a sense of hope or purpose, and were feeling oppressed. Unsurprisingly, many hated Miller's privileged guts. Though he doesn't seem to mention it, they must have found him basically a snob, and probably he was inclined to let them know that he was an American freedom fighter for liberty, not some common criminal like them. Overall, though, the Canton was remarked on as having a fast voyage and being a ship with very good conditions under an enlightened captain. Rations were coarse but adequate. The general standard of cleanliness was better than most prison ships. The surgeons seemed competent. 
and there was no excessive brutality. Prisoners were exercised on deck as much as possible at least, got a cup of cocoa in the evening and everybody had lime juice. That helped keep scurvy in check. Nobody died either. The voyage was so good, when they arrived, the deputy governor came aboard and congratulated the captain and the surgeon. If you are wondering how on earth this cosy life of Miller's was permitted and not seen as blatant corruption, then you need to remember it came down to money and class. Miller had friends of the right class to pay the surgeon to exercise influence. That meant they were accepted as having influence. That in turn meant Miller was the beneficiary of their influence. That stamped him as being of a similar class to the people exercising the influence. And the surgeon would only exercise influence for someone of the right kind of class. Miller was the right kind of person because he had friends of the right class. He might be regarded as at least a man of learning on the fringes of being a gentleman, and thus it wasn't seen as corruption. It was the perfectly proper operation of the class system. A common prisoner attempting to pay the surgeon directly for privileged treatment would almost certainly have been slapped down for getting above himself, or even charged with bribery. You can see this as an operation of social control and a way to reinforce the class structure. This semi-privileged lifestyle was to be rudely ended when the ship finally arrived in Van Diemen's land. Miller and co and all of the prisoners were interviewed and physically inspected. Then once through the process, the prisoners were paraded in the prison yard where Lieutenant Governor Sir John Franklin gave them a welcoming speech including a warning to the Americans, quote, your notions of liberty and equality must be kept within your own breast. Ben Damon's land is not America, end quote. Honestly, it isn't surprising. Most new prisoners have to adjust to the new reality of life inside and to the realisation that they are not in control of their lives anymore. Transportation to the Australian colonies was deliberately different from the older system of transportation to the American colonies. Wealthy convicts transported to the Americas could often buy themselves out of the labour requirements of their sentence. British authorities were determined not to allow this practice in the Australian colonies. Prisoners were at the mercy of the governors, who ruled with near-absolute power. They could pardon convicts, or sell them to private masters for labour. In practice, the convict was little better than a slave, whilst their term lasted. They could be punished on a whim, including confinement, beatings, whippings, or being sold off to labour in the brutal heat or driving rain. Food could be stopped, and starvation was not unheard of. Still, in the background, English law was being developed into a new form for the Australian colonies. Courts were established and precedents were being set. If civilization is ultimately said to be no more than establishing the rule of law at the point of the sword, then the colonies were being civilised. By 1824, the Second Supreme Court of New South Wales had heard its first murder case. It might sound ordinary to us, but it was a clear sign that English law and courts were being exported 
and integrated to this new world. It was deemed to have the same legal standing as the equivalent English court. Like America before it, a future Australian nation would have its roots in the transplanted common law. Ironically, the first Chief Justice, Francis Forbes, was a barrister who had practised extensively in America. He was the former Chief Justice of Newfoundland. He was also a liberal who believed that laws had to adapt to local circumstances, not slavishly follow those of the mother country. Quote, of all the evils upon society, I know of none more to be depreciated than to be governed by unsuitable laws. They interfere with the daily habits and pursuits of mankind. They are opposed to their feelings and opinions and carry in them all the consequences of oppression. End quote. He had a lot of thorny issues to grapple with, such as whether convicts sentenced to death and then transported were able to give evidence in court. Technically, they were tainted and considered the worst kind of criminal. Many people argued that but for the mercy of the crown, they were dead, so couldn't be accepted as truthful witnesses. Others, including Forbes himself, pointed out that since there were so many of them sent to places like Norfolk Island, the only witnesses to some serious crimes like murder were the previously condemned. Not accepting their evidence was giving carte blanche to seriously dangerous criminals, allowing them to build their own fiefdoms in areas where only a few convict guards and maybe a few infantry represented law and order. He worried deeply that it also discouraged rehabilitation as if convicts were always viewed as untrustworthy in court. They couldn't become law-abiding citizens as they could never enforce their own rights. Courts also had to deal with the tricky problems of women's property rights. Under English law at the time, when a woman married, her property became her husband's. But in the colonies, sometimes the wife was a free woman who employed her husband as convict labour, and convicts were not allowed to own property. And besides, what would happen once their sentence ended? The law could hardly want to have convicts marrying women and getting large tracts of land while still technically serving parts of their sentence. Attainted convicts were even worse as they were technically dead and they could hardly hold property at all. So it was decided that the women would be regarded as being unmarried for the purposes of property rights. This threw up further problems. Women of prisoners for life used this new status to sue men for breach of contract. The courts held that the prisoner's husband, if he made a contract, was only acting as his wife's agent and it was her making the contract. So she was entitled to sue people for breach of contract. That was a stunning reversal of the position in England where a woman was viewed as making contracts with people only as an agent of her husband who owned all of the property legally. Some wives tried setting up complex trusts and other financial instruments to keep their money and land out of their husband's hands, especially in instances of domestic violence, causing courts immense legal headaches. Three women who employed their convict husbands had the right to enforce discipline on their husbands. 
including taking them before the magistrates and applying to have them beaten or whipped like any other convict. Yet amongst those, there would indeed have been women who would have been abusing their position of power. This was a new world indeed. And as historian Bruce Kircher notes, it provides an interesting and unusual study of the patriarchy and gender relations in the early Victorian era. By 1840, the system of selling convict labour to private masters was abolished in New South Wales and Van Diemen's Land. The state would take direct control of how and where to employ convict labour. Underlying this was the beginnings of tension and British law was often being used to assert dominance over the colonies. They knew full well the importance of adapting to local conditions but were determined not to repeat what they saw as the mistakes of the American colonies where convicts were treated like indentured servants and the distant British Parliament suddenly lost control of the distant colonies. Yet the colonial courts pushed hard for more independence, especially Chief Justice Forbes, who looked back to his American experience for guidance in shaping law in the Australias. Hannah and Miller were arriving almost at the end of an era. It was becoming increasingly unusual in the late 1840s and early 1850s to transport people. By 1857, it was effectively stopped and then formally abolished in 1868. But for now, convicts they were, and they would have to go through the system. In general, prisoners were kept with their heads shaved and forced to wear a distinctive yellow and black uniform, nicknamed the Bumblebee. Confusion over the official regulations, and which applied to the American prisoners, meant that Miller and company might be immune from forced labour. The superintendent pointed out they would be bored senseless in a cell, with no exercise, and suggested they sweep the prison yard. The group debated this, some thinking it was a trick to get them to waive their rights, not to perform labour, but eventually agreed to the sweeping duties. By the first Sunday, clearly the novelty had worn off. Most prisoners went to the church, but Miller and company were told that they were to stay in the yard sweeping. They decided they weren't going to work on the Sabbath and had a furious argument with the superintendent, claiming that as Americans they couldn't possibly do so. It continued for a while, and when Miller was finally excused working Sundays to let him go to church, he decided he didn't like the service either. Eventually, Miller bitched his way to the unheard of leniency of being excused work and church on the Sunday. Miller decided to write a petition of complaint to the governor, demanding even more humane treatment. It was rejected four weeks later. The governor was furious that a prisoner was demanding constant special treatment. As far as he was concerned, Miller could call himself an American, a patriot, or a martyr for all he cared. Miller was a prisoner, and it was time he realised that. It was hard labour for him. He was soon working from dawn till dusk, but he managed to get himself appointed as a night watchman at Browns River Convict Station. This again excused him from the back-breaking hard labour under the blazing sun. He wrote at this point that he, quote, 
turned my eyes upon that beautiful constellation, the Southern Cross, and remembered that my Saviour bore his cross up Calvary. Could I become in the least reconciled to my hard fate? End quote. Having read a lot of accounts of the treatment of prisoners, even today, the tolerance the authorities showed him in the face of his martyrdom complex is frankly astonishing. In November 1839, two months after Hannah had arrived, and shortly before Miller, some verses of a song about Van Diemen's Land were published, and they are pretty damn chilling. Quote, They chain us up two by two, and whip and lash along. They cut off our provisions, if we do the least thing wrong. They march us in the burning sun, until our feet are sore. So hard's our lot now, we are got upon Van Diemen's shore. We labour hard from morn to night until our bones to ache and every one they must obey, their mouldy beds must make. We often wish when we lay down we ne'er may rise no more to meet our savage governors upon Van Diemen's shore. Every night when I lay down I wash my straw with tears while wind upon that horrid shore do whistle in our ears. Those dreadful beasts upon that land Around our cots do roar. Most dismal is our doom upon Van Diemen's shore. Come on, ye young men and maidens, do bad company forsake. If tongue can tell our overthrow, would make your heart to ache. You girls, I pray, be ruled by me. Your wicked ways give o'er. For fear, like us, you spend your days upon Van Diemen's shore. End quote. According to the newspaper they were published in, they were written by a convict, Sarah Collins, who was sent to Van Diemen's Land for being involved in highway robbery. I'm not sure if that is totally accurate, since there are lots of tradition variations on this ballad. Whatever version you listen to, you really know people were scared of the place. Hannah, like Miller, was joining an uneasy melting pot, a remote island at the edge of the world, being filmed with convicts and turned into a prison hell, but mixed with optimistic settlers, civil administrators, army and navy personnel, stowaways, whalers like the Samoan William Smith, who went on to own several vessels, hunters, deserters, and the ultra-rich, seeking to claim new lands and become land magnates in a new world. Fortune hunters, naturalists, and adventurers also came. There were Spanish and Portuguese whalers and sailors and Maori sea hunters. Convicts were forced to clear land to allow the free settlers to take possession. But when their sentence was up, they often got jobs or land themselves. Land values began to soar. Productivity leaped. Some of the migrants would move to the mainland later in life when the Australian gold rush started. It was a world away from the strict Georgian and Victorian hierarchy in mainland Britain. Suddenly, a European might encounter people who weren't part of the social class system, with tattoos and body modifications like scarification or piercings. Here, a new world was being born where a person could change what was written in their stars. British government wanted to make Van Diemen's Land a hellscape prison that people feared. But it was evolving. 
populations intermingled. Convicts had families with indigenous peoples who hadn't yet been deported. New immigrants arrived from Scotland and Ireland, then later from other countries like Germany and America. Hannah also had to create her new identity. That's really hard. Our identities are complex, multi-layered things, both individual and communal. They are not innate, but self-created and also imposed by society, yet also they are our reaction to society. For the Victorians, society and community counted for much more than the atomized individualistic society of today. Hannah would have understood her place not just in the social hierarchy, also in terms of her connections to the places, traditions and customs in England. Now, not only did she have to adjust to the loss of that identity as she transitioned from person to convict, she also had to do so in an utterly alien land. She had to reorient her understanding of the world and her place in it and relate that to the other people at a time when the identity of the wider community she had arrived in was itself in constant flux. Would Van Diemen's land stay a convict-filled hell? Were they English anymore? Was she even really a woman anymore? Cut off from the feminine world of Victorian Britain, what about the future? Would it just mean a sudden death? Would they all starve? Was it worth even trying? What about the rich settlers? How could she relate to them? Was she cast out of the Christian community twice? Once for her crime and now by living in a land that wasn't Christian? Or was this an opportunity? A new world and a new start? More freedom in some ways from older customs and structures? Her world was that of the convict emigrant woman, not the middle class or working class voluntary immigrant. A narrative of power, agency, feminism, or colonial or imperial power doesn't fit easily with the role of the involuntarily transported convict. I want us to try and see this through Hannah's eyes today, and Miller's, and understand that convicts like this, it was almost a journey into hell, but also an opportunity, even if it was a dislocating one. Hannah survived the journey to Van Diemen's land, wasn't viewed in the same light as the mainland. It was seen as a pure, harsh, penal colony, usually for the worst of the worst, fit only for whaling, logging and dumping convicts. Her fate depended on how she navigated life in a precarious settlement where conditions were not only utterly alien to a poor English city girl, but also notoriously harsh for the convicts. Feared above all, though, in Van Diemen's land was Port Arthur, the peninsula surrounded by rocks, sea and sharks. On Port Arthur was a dreaded silent prison. We will explore it in detail in our next main episode. We had two Irish lads on board, Jimmy Murphy and Paddy Malone. And they were both the truest mates that any man could own. Well, the gamekeeper, he caught them, and from old England, 
the seven years transported to Plough and England's land. The minute that we landed upon that dreadful shore, the troopers they surrounded us some twenty score or more. They led us around like horses and they sold us out of hand. And they yoked us to the plough, brave boys, to plough Van Diemen's land. One night as I lay sleeping all in the hulk below, I dreamed I was in Liverpool way back in Marlborough with my true love beside me and a jug of ale at hand when I woke quite broken hearted lying off and Thank you for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. And the show also has a Facebook page and group. Just search for The Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. It takes less time than making a cup of coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes, or you can go to patreon.com and search for the Age of Victoria podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.